Welcome everybody to a special edition of UFO Man Live. Tonight we are featuring a special guest, Terry Lovelace. Um, am I pronouncing that correctly? I say Lovelace, but yeah. Okay, Lovelace. Okay, Terry Lovelace. Um, he has a very interesting uh, story to tell about an abduction at Devil's Den State Park in Arkansas. Uh, but before we do that, let's go around the panel and introduce each other. Uh, my name is UFO Man, as you all know. Next to me is Tommy Highway. Take it away, Tommy. Folks, I'm Tommy Highway. I'm an author, ufologist, network engineer. I've been uh, involved in ufology for the last several years after experiences that I had in the mid-90s. Uh, I did grow up close to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio, which is, of course, rumored to be where the, where the storage facility uh, is to the Roswell wreckage, as well as some of the alien corpses that were found. Thank you. Terry, introduce yourself. Hi, good evening. My name is Terry Lovelace. I'm here tonight as UFO Man and Tommy's guest, and I'm happy to be here. Thanks for coming, Terry. Awesome. Okay, Tommy, take away the bio, please. Fantastic. Folks, let me read a little bit about Terry. Terry Lovelace served on active duty in the United States Air Force from 1973 to 1979. Trained as a medic and an EMT, the bulk of his enlistment was spent as a first responder at the emergency room of Whiteman Air Force Base Hospital. After military service, he completed a bachelor's degree in psychology, cum laude, from Park University. He earned a Juris Doctor from Western Michigan and was admitted to the bar the same year. In addition to serving as a felony prosecutor, he was keenly interested in healthcare law. He is a member of the American College of Healthcare Executives and was certified as a healthcare risk manager. While an assistant attorney general for the U.S. territory of America Samoa, he was general counsel for LBJ. Tropical Medical Center. He finished his legal career as state's attorney for Vermont's Board of Medical Practice in 2012. He lives in Dallas with his wife of 45 years. Thank you, Tommy. That was wonderful. I appreciate the very kind introduction. Thank you, sir. He also has a couple of books that he's written. Uh, he's an esteemed author, and he's written a couple of books about his experience. Here's the first one that he wrote, Incident at Devil's Den. A True Story by Terry Lovelace, Esquire, Compelling Proof of Alien Invasion, and I think it's available on Amazon, correct, Terry? It is only on Amazon, yes. Okay, and then he also wrote a follow-up book called Devil's Den, The Reckoning by Terry Lovelace, Esquire. This is also available on Amazon, correct? Correct, or you can go to terrylovelace.com uh, and look at the pictures, and there's a link there as well. Okay, all righty. Terry, tell us a little bit about yourself, starting with uh, how you entered into the military, how you made your choices of entering into the Air Force, and uh, um, how the camping trip came about. Sure. Sure. I graduated from high school in 1973 and uh, decided to enlist in the United States Air Force. Um, you know, not so much uh, out of patriotic sense, but more as seeing it as a ticket to college. Uh, you know, way to pay for tuition. Um, and uh, yeah, I served for six years on active duty honorably and did my best. Enjoyed my job, enjoyed the United States Air Force. And uh, I worked, uh, I drove an ambulance as a first responder. I was an EMT. Um, and I worked the night shift from 11 o'clock p.m. to 8 o'clock a.m. I worked with a guy 
uh, Toby or Tobias, and the two of us were best of friends. Uh, you know, you work with somebody on the night shift for three years, you get to know them pretty well. I was right. 22 years of age and he was 23 at the time. We were both newly married. We both lived on the base in NCO housing. Uh, so one night in 1977, I think it was April, my friend walked up to me and said, hey, man, I got an idea. Let's go camping. And I was like, what are you talking about? I mean, I, I'm a city kid. I'm from St. Louis, Missouri. I knew he was from Flint, Michigan. I knew I'd never been camping before. And I really uh, strongly suspected he'd never been camping before. And he hadn't. And I'm like, well, you know, what? what's up with this? And, and he actually made a good point. He knew that I was an amateur photographer. I had a little dark room set up in my house and developed black and white prints. And I had a new camera. And unfortunately, when you live on a nuclear base, there's not a lot you can do with your camera. Uh, so I wanted to get out in the country and photograph wildlife. And my friend was an amateur astronomer. Uh, he uh, wanted to become a, either a cosmologist, an astronomer, something, something related to space, and because uh, that was his fixation. I mean, he could pull out, he could name all the constellations and Type, you know, he could time uh, when a satellite was going to come over, and there weren't that many satellites around in 1977. So, um, and Devil's Den State Park, we didn't know it at the time, but it has a long, dark history. Um, if we have time, I might go into some of that. Okay. But uh, it's six and a half hours south uh, of Whiteman Air Force Base across the Arkansas border from Missouri. And in June of 1977, we prepared as well as we thought we could and, and made, the made the trip down to Devil's Den State Park. And by agreement, we uh, dodged the ranger station. And he had heard a rumor from a guy that uh, had been to the park and uh, who said that there's a high plateau kind of out and gave us a gen north to the northwest of the campsites. That's it. And uh, that's what we were looking for. And it was it's kind of misleading by that photo because when we were there, the, the plateau, the, the forest around the plateau, uh, the tops of the trees were level with the, uh, with the plateau. So unless you were right up on it, you couldn't see the thing. And just by happenstance, my friend was able to say, you know, turn left here, turn right here. And man, navigated us right to it. And we were on the, we were on pavement that degraded the gravel, that degraded the dirt, and we came to a chain across the road with this really sternly worded keep out, do not enter sign. And uh, my friend saw that the, the chain had just been looped and padlocked on itself and draped over a nail on the opposing post. So I was about to turn around. He's like, no, man, I got this. He hops out of the car, picks up the chain and drops it to the ground. And it's like, woohoo, we're in, you know, we're, we're feeling like Lewis and Clark, right? You know, we've never been camping before, but we're uh, right. we're uh, real frontiersmen. Yeah. Roughing it. Oh, man. And <laughs> we found our way to this uh, plateau, and there's one dirt road still there today. It's just still dirt, uh, still a dirt road. Um, and, you know, there should be 40-year-old mature trees on top of that plateau by now, and there are not. Um, I took a I took the photographs of that from Google Earth and put them on my uh, Facebook page. And uh, I got a response from uh, a follower who's a landscaper down in Alabama who said, somebody cuts that. They keep that clear cut so that no trees will grow onto it. Really? Um, really. 
And that, that, that sliver of land is not actually in Devil's Den State Park. Uh, it's actually federal land that's carved out of the park. Wow. I, I, we had no idea. Uh, so we were passing up federal land. It's owned by the Bureau of Land Management. I tracked the deed down, and it's uh, owned to the Bureau of Land Management and leased to an individual. Um, so for some reason, the U.S. government pays for gas for 50 years to cut, you know, to keep clear cut the top of this plateau in the middle of nowhere. Interesting. Yeah, right. figure. You almost wonder if it's uh, a site that's known for what happened to you in the past. You know, I I don't like to make assumptions, but uh, that's kind of the most obvious assumption to make. It really is. I can't right. imagine any other reason. I would think right. there had to be some some special reason for them to be wasting resources on a piece of ground, like you said, in the middle of nowhere like that. That's, uh, that's very interesting. Yeah, it makes no sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. right. So when we got there, uh, the grass was about six inches tall, uh, about halfway up our, our lower leg. And it was covered with late blooming wildflowers and it was just gorgeous. I mean, it was just like the perfect place to camp. So we, uh, I wanted to set up camp in the middle of the thing. And my buddy's like, no, 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 we can't do that. Let's set up over here by the tree line. And I didn't understand his resistance to that. But later on, it made sense because had we stayed where I wanted to camp, this thing would have been right over our heads. And what we saw, this was about... Well, you know, we, we had a good day, a fun day doing all the, all the cool stuff you do when you go camping. It was all new to us, and, and right. we enjoyed ourselves. It was fun. And we had the little $10 Kmart tent and some blow-up air mattresses. And about 9 o'clock that evening, we'd eaten some, burned some hot dogs, and, you know, we had our air mattresses inflated, one on either side of the campfire, and a little campfire between us and a tent in back of us. And um, we're just talking and chatting, and... There came a lull in our conversation and it got quiet. And uh, I noticed that this, the, the tree frogs, the crickets, all the stuff in the forest that makes noise at night right. was fell silent. And it really, it really was, I thought it was spooky. It unnerved me. It, it didn't phase my friend, but it unnerved me. If, if I'd have been there by myself, I'd have been gone. <laughs> but, right. But I wasn't going to do that. I wasn't going to be that guy. So... Um, I tried to put it out of my mind and we carried on talking and uh, it's about 10, 15 minutes later, he's got his head turned to his left and he's looking at something and I'm about to ask him, hey, what are you looking at? When he asked me, hey, Terry, were those lights there before? And I didn't know of any lights. I mean, this was the middle of nowhere. Um, you know, if you look at the satellite images now, there there are some houses and things somewhat close to close by but when we were there there was nothing out there and uh he yeah and when he said were those lights there before i i couldn't see them because his torso was in the way so i had to stand up and take a step back and on the western horizon there was a set of three little stars in a tight triangular pattern uh, sitting right above the um, the horizon and they were too far above the horizon to have been lights from a a train or a parking lot or something. They were definitely in the sky. And I thought maybe it was a plane that was headed right toward us. And we really couldn't perceive any motion until it would change uh, course by a degree or two, maybe. Uh, and just look stationary. Um, but I couldn't think of any airplane that would have that triangular shaped light configuration. 
Yeah. So we're both kind of just puzzled and we're looking at this thing and then it rotates. It turned like it was on an axis. The three stars turned and they turned to the right and rotated about 120 degrees and aligned the base of the triangle uh, level with the horizon. Wow. Parallel with the horizon. And then as soon as it did that, it started to move up into the sky slowly at first, but it started to move up. As soon as it started to move up, that's when I felt this, um, this wave of calm wash over me. Um, it was like mild sedation. You know, what we were seeing, uh, our, our emotions were muted. I mean, this, you know, we should have been scared or freaked out or even more curious than what we were. We were all almost kind of, I won't say apathetic, but almost disinterested. It really felt like I was um, an observer more than a participant. It was it was a weird emotion, but my friend must have been in the same frame of mind because, you know, there's no conversation between us. We're just watching this thing, and we're absolutely relaxed. And wow. we watched it, and it climbed up into the sky. I think it hit a ceiling of about 10,000 feet, I'm guessing. I really had nothing to base that on other than my assumption. And when it, when it hit 10,000 feet, it changed orientation to lying flat parallel with the earth and then dipped down and started a glide plane in toward us. I mean, we could tell by the apex of the triangle pointed directly at us that that's where it was headed. And as it's descending, it's getting large, larger, you know, and we could tell that it was a solid object because it would, it would, uh, as you go past a field of stars, they would blink out for a moment until it had passed. And there were, it was a it was crystal clear night with a trillion stars out and the sky had kind of a, a dark blue glow to it. But the area inside this triangle was black. So we knew we were looking at a solid. It wasn't three objects moving in, in unison. It was one object. And as it, as it slid down, uh, it really was like gliding. We never heard a noise. Uh, it did this thing where it tumbled and the point of the triangle dipped down and then the back end came all the way around and it did a complete somersault. And uh, I don't know where this comes from, but I had, I had the feeling that they were doing that for us, you know, that, wow. that was, yeah, that was their way of saying, look, this thing isn't out of control. We're, we're in control of it. And uh, um, I, I just, I don't know where that feeling come from, but I had that, that feeling. And uh Terry, would you like me to show a picture you're drawing of what it looked like? Yeah, I think I think folks would like that. Okay. That drawing that was made in I drew that just a few months after the incident. Uh, and if you look at the ground uh, to the far left, you'll see some forest, and then you'll see my car, my 1966 Impala, and uh, two figures and a tent. And I drew that to kind of give some kind of um, you know, sense of, of size to this thing uh, because it was absolutely huge. It filled that entire meadow. Uh, and wow. it was, as I described, a city block on each leg of the triangle. Wow. So it was enormous. And how many, you said it was like five stories high? It was, but we couldn't tell that at this point. At this point, all we could see was the underside of the thing. And okay. so... It, it cruised in at about uh, 5,000 feet on the horizon and then descended 
um, as it came across the, the floor the, or the tops of the trees, we could see the points of light dimmed somewhat, but it's still illuminated. So we had three like dim points of light on top of on the treetops and then this black shadow in, in between the, the points of the, of the triangle. And it glided in and stopped. Uh, and again, totally silent, stopped at about 3,000 feet over our heads. Uh, that's an estimate, but I think it's going to be pretty close, 3,000 feet. So as I said, we could see the underside of the thing, but that was it at this point. Right. And as soon as it stopped, from underneath and in the center, it shot down a beam of light that was a, um, a white light. It had the quality of uh, a searchlight cutting through fog where okay. you see a column of white light. Sure. But, but there was no fog. There was just this uh, maybe six inches in diameter column of white light that landed in our campfire. And it just, like someone hit a switch, it turned on. And it stayed um, in the campfire for about maybe a minute. And then just, again, shuts off. Uh, and then there came a second light. And this was a... Um, this was a laser, and I'd never seen lasers except on television. And this was about the diameter of a pencil, and it uh, was a bluish purple in color. And it would land in one spot in our campsite for like a tenth of a second and then reappear in another spot. So in a second, it would dance around ten different spots in the, uh, in the campsite. And I just, you know, it struck me in the chest a couple times. It hit my buddy. Uh, wow. It, hit our tent, hit my car, hit his backpack, his Coleman cooler, uh, the campfire. Kind of, it kind of like hit everything that we brought, everything that wasn't, uh, you know, organic to the scene there, everything that we brought, uh, including ourselves. Wow. Like did, you said, feel, did, did you feel anything when it hit you in the chest? Not a thing. Not a thing. Hmm. It's an ominous light probing you, but you don't feel it. That is amazing. Well, you know, and that was the sense that I had was, hey, this thing's checking us out. It's, mm -hmm. It really is checking us out. It's scanning us. <clears throat> yep. And uh, wow. again, you know, there was no anxiety or, or fear of any kind. And we were in this sedated uh, sense. I mean, I, I was, um, yeah, I really felt mildly sedated. And then as soon as that light turned off, it la that laser lasted about maybe three minutes. Um, and as soon as that turned off, uh, that feeling of calm sedation that I had transitioned to sleepy. And all I wanted to do was get my air mattress and go in that tent and go to sleep. And um, my friend beat me to it. He stood up and he said, he stood up and he said, show's over. And I think that's the first thing he said, you know, uh, since the thing started. And, huh. He went over and he threw his, his air mattress in the tent and fell on top of it. And I followed suit through mine in. And I, I didn't bother to take off my shirt or my boots or anything. And that'll come, that'll come into play in, in just a bit. Um, so I, I just fell on top of this air mattress and I was out. I mean, I was, I don't think I was asleep. I think I was unconscious. And that's when they took us. Um, after, after you entered the tent is when they took you. Correct. They took us out of the tent while we were there unconscious. Yeah. So essentially they anesthetized you and then boom, you're wow. That's amazing. Yeah. I was going to ask Terry, 
was the beings that you saw the one that I put in your advertisement? This one? Yes. That's what you saw, that being right there. That's a pretty good representation of the being that I saw on the ship. Uh, that drawing was made by a gentleman from uh, England named Ronnie Kinsella. He and his brother, Philip Kinsella, um, are called the, uh, uh, they're, they're twin brothers. I can't, you really cannot tell these two guys apart. Um, but I think their show is called, is called Twin Souls. Uh, I've been on their show a couple of times out of London. Right. Me. So you probably heard of Philip Kinsella. I'm yes. Sure. Yes. Um, yeah, so that's Ronnie's drawing uh, based pretty much on my description. The only thing I would do it look differently is make the eyes just a little bit larger uh, and all black. Um, but that is the entity that I recalled uh, seeing on the ship. I have some memories, clips of memories from being inside that thing. Now, you know, I, and I, I've, I've never had a, a, a clear linear memory of what happened to us, mm -hmm. but I have bits and pieces. And one of, the, one of the things that I remember was this guy. And I'll tell you the context of it is that, um, well, I should go back to where I woke up. I woke up in the tent because there were these flashing lights that were just brilliant. They just were lit up that tent like a ballpark at night for a millisecond. And they were white and yellow and maybe greenish. And uh, they were the intensity of like an old school flashbulb from the 60s, one of those ones with, filled with filament on side, you know, it goes sure. off in your face. You see a blue dot every time you blink. Mm -hmm. uh, they were that, that intense. And I wake up and I don't have my wits about me. And I'm thinking these are the overhead flashers of a park ranger's truck there to, there to kick us out of the park is what I'm thinking. And while we didn't hear anything at all when this thing glided in and, and parked over the meadow. Um, now I'm hearing this droning noise and it sounds like a, um, it sounds like a big piece of industrial machinery. If you've ever stood next to uh, a diesel locomotive, maybe an idle yes. or something, you know that it's, it's not auditory, that it's not loud with your ears, but you can feel the power in your chest, mm -hmm. sure. you know, like a bass speaker at a concert or something. Mm -hmm. And that's what this was like. So I'm thinking, like I said, I don't have my wits about me. I'm thinking, you know, park ranger running a generator in the back of the truck, that doesn't make a lot of sense. And I sat up, and when I did, I noticed that my boots had been unlaced almost all the way down. And I knew I didn't do that. I mean, I would have gone to sleep with my boots laced up, which is what I did, uh, or would have taken them off all the way. But I wouldn't have gone to sleep with them like that as a trip hazard in case, for whatever reason, you needed to run. Sure. So that annoyed me. I wasn't scared at this point. Uh, I, was, I felt confused, but I, I didn't feel any fear. And I took my boots off and my socks were on sideways. And I knew that I would never do that. And I put them on properly, put my boots back on, laced them up. And then I turned my attention to my friend who's on his knees and he's peeking out of the tent. And I'm like, what's out there, Toby? What is it? Toby, is it park rangers? What's out there, man? And he didn't answer me. And um, I got to my knees and I pulled back the flap on my side of the tent and I looked out and I saw that this thing that had been 3,000 feet over our heads when we went to sleep had descended 
and it's now just 30 feet over the meadow. So wow. Wow. we are off to the side of it, thankfully, but it's 30 feet above the meadow now. And that's how I was able to see the sides of it and get an idea of its depth. And as I said, it was it was five stories tall. It was it was as if somebody suspended a medical building or something out there. It was it was just crazy. Um, and I wasn't really scared at that point either. And then walking around on the on the meadow, walking around were what I first took to be uh, children, maybe a dozen, maybe fifteen. And I could see them kind of in silhouette. I could only see them fairly clearly whenever the lights on the triangles would would flash, and they were flashing at odd intervals. Um, and that confused me too. And I asked Toby, I said, man, what are these kids doing out here in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the night? And that's when he said to me, Terry, man, those ain't the little kids. Look at them. They're not human beings. Don't you remember? They took us and they hurt us. And as soon as he said that, uh, my fear went from maybe a 10 to like a hundred. I mean, over the top, I was oh, absolutely God. scared to death. And I think both of us were scared to death, afraid that we'd sneeze or cough or do something to draw their attention, you know, and they'd maybe come over and visit us, you know, and we didn't know they were already, they were long done with us by this point. Hmm. So wow. we, uh, we watched as this light came on from the center and underneath of this thing again. And this was a column of white light again, visible white light. And as soon as that clicked on, all these little guys turned their attention toward that light. And I could see them, but they were a fair distance away, but I could see that they were gray. I don't know if that's their natural skin tone or if that was a garment of some kind they wore. Um, and they had a funny gait. They had a real distinctive walk. They walked like their knees were hinged to go backward, maybe an inch or two with each step. So it looked like they were dragging their feet behind them. It's strange. Um, and the first two or three, the first two little guys stepped into this light. And within about 20 seconds, they just pixelated out and they were gone. And while we watched, they in twos and threes stepped into this light. And within 20, 30 seconds max, they would pixelate out and just be gone. Very much like the Star Trek thing, um, the old old Star Trek thing. <clears throat> right. And when the last two little guys were gone, that light shut off and that droning noise that we'd been hearing stopped. And it was, um, you know, how you listen to something that became like the baseline. You know, we'd been hearing this noise for so long, we didn't, we didn't notice it really until it went off. Mm -hmm. And then it was real silent. And... Um, uh, we watched this thing take off and it took off. It didn't take off like a rocket. It just lifted off like a hot air balloon and went straight up in the air. And we saw three lights and then it gained speed as it gained altitude. And then there were just one light. And then finally it was gone. And I was scared to death. I didn't want to leave the tent. I told my friend, I had no, we had no idea what time it was. Um, both of our watches, we had nice mechanical wind-up watches that we kept synchronized because they were integral to our job of being EMTs. And uh, both of those watches stopped at 2.40. Mine stopped at 2.40 in the nose. Toby stopped at 2.41. And those watches never worked again. Wow. I say they were mechanical wind-up watches. I wish I had saved my watch, uh, but I didn't. But hmm. So from there... 
Go ahead, Tim. I, I just had a question. What was the duration, do you think, of the actual, from the actual sighting to the actual abduction to when they left? What was the time? Because our, because our watches didn't work, um, we don't know. They could have taken us at 240. Um, they could have taken us 10 minutes after we went in the tent. I don't think we have any way of knowing. Okay. Uh, I can, I can, by tracing that backwards, I know that we, we got up, we woke up about an exact, I'd say about, about an hour before sunrise because wow. we, we didn't wait that long in the tent for, uh, for sunrise mm -hmm. to happen. So. Right. Wow. Wow. Uh, that's a long time. Like I say, it is, but like I said, I don't know how long we were up there, but. Wonderful story. Um, and we also know that you had, uh, you've been x-rayed, you've had some implants and things like that. Would you like to tell us about those? Yeah, I would. You know, that's, that's really important because that really is the catalyst for me to have written both of these books and to, have, you know, to speak publicly about it because, you know, when I, I, I worked in the law, as you know, and uh, telling the story uh, would have cost me my job with the, with the state for sure. Mm -hmm. You know, I would have lost my, my job. Uh, no question. Not only that, I would have lost my, you know, the respect of my peers in the legal community. I, I would have been a joke, you know. I completely uh, understand that completely. So my wife and I um, decided to tell no one. And, mm -hmm. uh, and we really even didn't discuss it that often because every time we did, I had nightmares. So I, um, I, I retired from the state of Vermont in January of 2012 and relocated to Dallas, Texas, where we have adult children and grandchildren. And uh, about October, it was, it was October 25th, I think, I, I woke up uh, one morning and I couldn't bear weight on my right leg because my, my knee hurt. And I told my wife, I said, something's wrong with my leg. I got I to gotta go to the hospital. So I get all my medical care from the VA. So she took me to the VA emergency room and I went in and they x-rayed my leg and uh, the lady that did the x-ray was like, hmm. And she did a couple more and she shot like three sets of x-rays on my leg. And she asked me, she said, do you have a shrapnel wound or something that would account for a piece of body or a piece of uh, metal in your body? And I said, no, I never, you know, I never left Missouri. You know? <laughs> um, never been in an auto accident, uh, you know, she wanted to know if I'd hurt my right leg in particular around the knee. And I'm like, no, never, you know, skin, skin knee as a kid. And she says, well, you have some anomalies on your x-rays. And I've asked the radiologist to come down and take a look. And I said, well, can I see them? They're my x-rays. And she's like, well, I'll leave that to the radiologist. That's his decision. So radiologist comes down, obviously ticked off that he had, he'd been asked to come down. Um, and he looks at these x-rays and, um, he looked at the one above my knee and you can see there's a square structure with two wires attached to it. And uh, he popped that up on the view box. And when he did, I could tell this is, this is kind of zoomed in, but this is an area above my right knee and kind of lateral. And I recognized the spot. It was right above or pardon me, right below a spot on my knee where when I used to run, that spot would go completely numb. And that, that, that was shocking to me. Um, 
I was a runner. I started running in 1979 and I ran until I had a heart attack in 2005. Um, and I didn't run marathons, but I'd run a couple miles, but I'd run almost every day. And uh, every time I'd hit the two mile mark in my run, I mean, you know, give or take 50 yards, uh, the spot on my leg would go completely numb. And I took a, uh, a safety pin with me one day. And at the end of my run, um, I could trace the outline of it. It was a perfect circle, about the size of a half dollar. And uh, it was absolutely numb. Um, and I asked my doctor about it. And she's like, well, does it interfere with your run? And I said, no, not really. And she's like, you know, it sounds like a histemic reaction of some kind. She said, if it doesn't affect your run, I wouldn't worry about it. So I didn't. Terry, um, is this the picture you're talking about right here? That's the picture of the thing below my leg. The structure that you had on there before, the square structure, that's the one above my knee. That's the one that uh, was directly underneath that spot that would go numb. Okay. But when I saw this particular x-ray, the one with the square structure, because the radiologist said that's absolutely a square man-made structure. Um, well, I, I can agree with half of that at least. Um, I have a friend, a guy I went to law school with, uh, works for the Bureau of Alcohol, well worked, he just retired, worked for the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms. And the BATF has the world's largest database on uh, electrical devices. And uh, they, the reason they have that is because in 1989, I think, the Lockerbie Scotland uh, bombing happened. Mm -hmm. And they, uh, they traced that by retrieving radio parts, little capacitors, transistors, resistors, all kinds of stuff. And by being able to identify those parts, they were able to trace the radio by making model back to Pakistan. So that's how they identified the, the Lockerbie Scotland um, bomber. And wow. uh, so they created this database that, like I say, has the world's largest, any, if it's made for electronics in the world, it's gonna be in their database. And this thing in my leg is not in their database. So the thing below my, below my leg, the uh, radiologist pops up a uh, pop. Yeah, he popped that one up on the view box. And because uh, before he popped it up, he said, you got some bones in your lower leg. And I, I was like, well, you know, isn't that, isn't that normal? Or are you supposed to have? <laughs> and, and he pops this up and he says, well, he says, you know, you have you have bones in the middle of your calf muscle. And he said, I've never seen bones spontaneously sprout in the middle of a calf or in the middle of any muscle, much less arrange themselves in a symmetrical pattern. He said, I've never seen this before. Hmm. And he said, the thing above my knee, there has to be a scar. Uh, because while, while the things below my knee, he thought were bone, bone tissue, the, uh, the thing above my knee, uh, was a was a manufactured artifact, and he said that would have had to left a scar. Somebody would have had to cut you and embed that in your skin, mm -hmm. and to get it at that depth, there's going to be a scar. And he said, you may not remember it. Maybe it happened. You know, sometimes we gain and lose weight, and those scars can migrate. I'm like, Doc, I've, I've other than a skin knee as a kid, I've never had an injury to that leg, and uh, he insisted on looking. He thought he could prove me wrong and he couldn't find a scar. There is no scar. And that visibly upset him. And I said, well, doctor, let me ask you if I may, 
how often is it that you find a foreign object in the human body at this depth, at this of this size, and there not be a corresponding scar? And he says, never. He said, I've been a radiologist 23 years. And he said, the, violate the integrity of the skin and get some, something like this embedded and there's going to be a scar. He says, I have no way to tell how this thing got into your body. And then I, I knew, I mean, it, it validated, it affirmed that these things put their hands on me in 1977, at least. That's, that square object is clearly an artificial structure embedded in your body. I mean, that the human body doesn't make anything naturally or otherwise to look anything like that. I mean, that's not a tumor. That's not a bone spur, that's nothing like that. That is defined edges, it's got wires. I mean, that is just amazing, it truly is. Yeah, yeah, body doesn't have uh, <clears throat> right angles. You know? What is this, right. Terry? Terry, what is this picture? That's a picture of my knee from straight on, looking front to back. <clears throat> and if you look, you see that uh, on the right side as you're looking at it, and right below the knee joint, you see that little line of objects. See those there? Yep. Yeah, on the right. Correct. Yeah. Those, that is that florette pattern that you see when you look at it sideways. Ah, okay. Like this one. Okay, gotcha. And this one right here is the that, side of the square? Yes, that that is a different animal altogether. I'll tell you what happened was um, I was warned in October of 2017, as I was writing my book, um, I had trouble. I couldn't get a surgeon to take these things out of my leg. I just wanted the thing out of the top of my leg. Uh, I couldn't get a surgeon to agree to touch the things in the bottom of my leg because they were natural bone and they wouldn't do that. Uh, but the thing above my knee, uh, surgeons were like, cool, yeah, I'd like to remove that. And I, and I wanted somebody, I wanted it out of my leg. But I told them I wanted it removed under a forensic protocol. I wanted to go, you know, like they were removing a bullet for, you know. Mm -hmm. Investigation. Investigation, right. Mm -hmm. so following a forensic protocol where they have a chain of custody established, it passes from his hand to my hand or my, my agent's hand, uh, whoever I designate if I'm, you know, knocked out. And... Uh, the, the surgeons were like, fine, go get a cardiac clearance letter because you've had, you've had a couple heart attacks and we need a cardiologist to certify that you're good for the surgery. And I couldn't get a cardiologist to do that. Hmm. And the reason they explained is, um, well, first of all, the VA cardiologist said, look, you know, I got 50,000 vets out there with iron in their body from Iraq or uh, Korea and they wanted out yesterday too, but you know, the standard of care in this country is if it's not if it's not causing a problem, you know, it's a risk benefit analysis. Is mm -hmm. the benefit of taking it out if it's not bothering you? Uh, is that worth the risk of an infection or, uh, or an, a, a reaction to the anesthesia or any number of things that could go wrong surgically? Mm -hmm. uh, and the answer is no, at least not in this country. So I found a radiologist down in uh, uh, Tijuana who was going to remove it for me because, you know, they don't follow standard care in the United States. Sure. Right. Right. And uh, I was going to do that in December of 2017. And right before I published the book, uh, because I wanted to have it in my hand, that was going to be part of my book. And uh, I, I'm going to cut this a little bit short, but 
I had an entity in my house, third week in October, 2017. I woke up sitting bolt upright in my living room and there was a, what I took to be a petite Asian woman sitting directly across from me. And I know this sounds tough to believe, but I'm, I'm telling you, this is what happened. And she spoke to me telepathically. And I had that same sedated feeling that I had back in 1977. I wasn't afraid. I wasn't freaked out. I wasn't uh, ready to get a gun. I wasn't, I, she sat across from me in a non-threatening posture. And uh, I didn't feel threatened by her. And uh, my first thought, I didn't say anything audibly, was uh, my first thought was, are you here about this thing in my leg? And I heard her visibly, I mean, audibly in my head. I mean, with crystal clarity, I heard her voice, a voice, a female voice say, yes, that's right. And um, she told me that I should not have it removed, that it can't fall into the hands of terrestrial scientists and that if I had it removed or made plans to have it removed, that her hosts, H-O-S-T-S, would remove it in the middle of the night while I'm asleep. And I, and I, the word host bugged me because it could mean so many things. I mean, it sure. could be a noun, it could be a right. verb, you could host a dinner party, right. you, know, you could symbiotic, uh, parasitic relationship, there's a host. Uh, so mm -hmm. I'm like, who are your hosts? What, what, is a, what is a host? <clears throat> and she says, you call them aliens. I call them my hosts. They're not alien to me. And I thought, well, that's kind of poetic almost. Um, and she told me that she was a hybrid. And um, that was her warning. And on November 17th, about two and a half weeks later, I woke up and I had terrible pain in my upper legs. Uh, I had these deep puncture wounds. They eventually bruised and had a uh, really kind of a flower pattern like bruise pattern to them. Uh, those are on uh, my terrylovelace.com page. You can see um, top of my leg with these bruises. There's a puncture wound in the middle that was real deep, but it didn't bleed. Um, and I woke up in pain and I told my wife, I said, they came in and got this thing out of my leg last night. And she said, well, you got to go get an x-ray, go find out. And I'm like, boy, where am I going to get an x-ray? Because you can't just walk in and order one. Sure. So I thought, I'll go to, I'll go to a chiropractor. It's a chiropractor's office not far from us. Mm -hmm. So, And I know those guys look at 100 x-rays a week. So I took copies of my x-rays on paper with me. And I went, I didn't have an appointment. They were busy and I waited. This was November 17, 2017. I waited to see the guy. And he finally calls me back and says, okay, where do you hurt? And I pulled my pants down in the exam room and, and showed him these punctures, these puncture wounds. And he's like, man, those are really weird. How did you get those? I'm like, Doc, I don't know. I woke up with them. And he said, uh, well, were you in some kind of accident? And I said, no, Doc, you're busy. So I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. You see, in 1977, while I was on active duty in the United States Air Force, I think I was abducted from a campground. And I think that I had an implant in my leg. And I think they came and took the thing out. And I'm here to see if you could x-ray my leg for me and, and confirm that. Hmm. And he's like, all right, then. Um, and I pull up my pants and he has me by the elbow and he's escorting me toward the front door because he thinks I'm he's, he thinks I'm crazy. Mm -hmm. But I know these guys look at 100 x-rays a week. 
So I held up those pieces of paper uh, showing these things. And about three feet from the door, he stopped. And he took the pieces of paper and he said, follow me. And I went back to his office. We went in his office and he shut the door and locked it. And his phone's ringing and people were knocking at the door. And uh, I sat down in front of his desk and he put the pieces of paper in front of me and said, tell me about these. Give me the capsule version. And I said, well, Doc, pretty much what I said. And he said, okay. He says, I don't have x-ray equipment here. He says, we use a freestanding uh, radiology clinic just down the road. It's about a mile away. I'll write a prescription for you to have the x-ray. I'll pay for your x-ray. Wow. But you promised me you won't use my name or the name of my clinic in your book. And I've honored that. Uh, so I went down and I got, I got an x-ray. And I went out to my car and I, they gave them to me. They gave the films to me. And I put them up. It was a sunny day. I put them up and I could see that the thing above my knee was gone. Wow. And I had really conflicted emotions about that. I mean, in a way, it was like, well, I'm glad it's out. But in a way, for some reason, I felt depressed. And I don't understand that, that emotion. But I dropped the x-rays off at his office. Um, and by the way, the things below my leg are still there. They're, they're untouched. Um, I dropped the x-rays off at his office and uh, he showed them to me. He called me up on the phone and he said, did you know that uh, they may have taken that artifact out above your knee, uh, but did you see that they left something in your leg? And I'm like, no, I didn't see that. I don't know where to look. You know? Uh, so I went down to his office and he showed me and uh, he said, there are two parallel wire, two wires, parallel, close together. Um, on the on the black and white image in my book, it just looks like a white line. But if you hold the x-ray film up to a light source, you can see they are two distinct little wires uh, lying next to one another. And I said, Doc, if, if these things are so far above us, evolutionary, they're, they're so more intelligent than we are, how could they be so inept as to leave these wires in my leg? And he said, you don't get it. They don't do anything by accident. He said... These two little wires in your leg are probably an upgrade. They probably gave you the 2017 model of the 1977 model they took out. Wow. And, uh, you know, if you think about it, that kind of makes sense. I look sure. how much our technology right. advanced right. since 1977. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So uh, I feel like I'm still trapped. Um, I've got those two little wires next, next to my femur. I'm not going to have them removed. Um, because they'd have to cut real deep into tissue and into my thigh to get them out. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm just not going to have that done. I'm going to let them lay. Um, let me ask you this. Have you ever had any kind of test done in that area to see if it's emitting any kind of a radio wave or any kind of a signal of any kind? Yes. Um, there, there's a, um, the Kling brothers are from Austin, Texas. And the Kling brothers had a ghost show on for a while, uh, maybe 10 years ago or so. And uh, they called their show Ghost Lab. And I met them at a, at a conference, and they asked me if I'd come to, to uh, Austin. And um, they wanted to record my story because uh, they heard me speak at this conference. And I said, sure, I'd be glad to. So my wife and I went up there, and um, they have a little studio set up in, their, in the basement of their house. You know, they got a nice sound booth, and they got a, you know, a board with all the all – the, stuff mm -hmm. on it and they got a sound guy there and uh i told my story and i had a um uh, i forget the name of it 
the little mic that clips onto your lapel. Um, so I had a mic and I told my story, we're done, I'm finished. And I went to take this thing off my lapel and it fell into my lap. And as soon as it did, it, it landed about halfway down my right leg. And the sound guy pushes his earphones close to his ear and he tells everyone, shh. And everybody goes quiet and he's listening. And instinctively, I picked up that mic and I laid it right over that thing above my knee. And when he did, when I did that, he said, I hear mariachi music. Oh, really? Seriously. Wow. And wow. he has, they have this on, they have this on film. Uh, and it was a, they listened and one of the guys spoke Spanish and it was an AM radio station broadcasting out of Mexico. So yeah, my knee was broadcasting mariachi music for some reason. How about that? So it was some kind of radio transmitter that mm -hmm. uh, technology based uh, implant. Yeah, something. I mean, I, I wish I knew what it did. Um, you sounds know, we, a, sounds well, a lot like a radio, like a radio tag would use on an animal or a shark or something like that, maybe. Yeah, it, that was exactly my thought, Tom. He's like, you know, what we do to lion on a Serengeti plane, you know? Yeah. So, tag them. Tag them. Yeah.